Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and on today's podcast, I'm joined by Joe748 and SD1, a couple of seven-figure APs. These guys have played a lot more than I have over the last decade, and while I've run large-scale teams, these guys have been in the trenches and are actually currently in the trenches beating casinos. We're going to cover things from playing style to when to adjust your bankroll, both when you're winning or when you're losing, AP etiquette when you encounter another card counter, and more. So without any further ado, here's our mailbag episode with Joe 748 and SD1. Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I'm joined for a Q&A mailbag style episode with Joe 748 and SD1. How's it going, SD1? Living the dream being here with you too. Awesome. It's It's been a while since we've been able to hop on a podcast with you. Glad to have you with us again. How are you doing, Joe 748? Doing good. Me and SD1 are going to do a competition to see whose voice is deeper i don't have a deep voice (laughs) let you guys fight over that so we got a whole array of questions from playing style to counting questions to other ap play so uh strapping guys we're going to see what we can get to and what we don't get to this time we'll get to in the next one i'll start this one off with this first question it says should you refuse to give up your id even if you're playing rated I feel like they already have all your information if you're using your player's card, but I'm not sure. So this is a really common question. I'll just open it up to you guys. Yeah, I mean, at that point, if you're playing rated, I, I've i always just given the ID at cash out or something to make it easier because they already know everything. So Yeah, there's nothing to add to that, really. They already have all your information. So, yeah, it's a little bit silly to say if you're playing rated, should you give up ID? They know who you are. But what if you're not playing rated, I guess, is is the bigger question we get asked all the time. I fight like hell and don't want to give up my ID. Yeah, if I've been in a situation where if I'm not playing rated and then they come over and call me by my first and last name and I let's say I have like 15 grand or something in chips and I, I just give up my ID at that point just to make the cash out easier. And I've tried to retroactively like, okay, now that I have to get my ID, can you actually make me a player's card? You know, and then (laughs) sometimes if they didn't trespass me, if it's just a back off, then they will. And then I'll get the points and I've gotten like free play in the mail after the fact. So that's worked. But yeah, I've had that same situation where I'm refusing and saying, no, I don't need a player's card. But then when it's a legal reason to give ID like a CTR, then it's like, well, why don't you make me that player's card anyway? And then get all the perks of a player's card, but but definitely aren't. I'm not giving ID for no good reason. But th- it is a little bit weird to say, should you refuse to give ID if you're playing rated? If you're playing rated, they know who you are. All right, next question. How long do you wait after a back off to return to the same casino? Do you remember what Spartan said when he was asked this out of boot camp? No, yeah, what was that? He said, here in Vegas, the next shift. Yeah, that's right. I thought he said shift. In Vegas, yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> Well, yeah. What do you guys think about this? I wait a, a lot longer than, you know, a day or a couple of weeks outside of Vegas. Like for me, sometimes I don't even go back for at least a year, but that's more just because I, I'm not going to be traveling through this certain area at this time. So there's, there's so many other places to play. But I remember talking to Tommy Highland at one of the boot camps, and he was talking about how he passes by this place on his way home in the summer and one one summer i asked him how many times he got bagged off at that place and he said like 15 times that summer so oh that summer he got backed off 15 times yeah yeah i feel like there's so many casinos 
And I'm like Joe. I mean, mine's six months to a year because there are so many casinos, you're going to a different area. So if I'm going to hit that area again, it's going to be a lot of time. So I feel like this applies more to people in their local area. And one thing I would say about that is it seems like everybody's concerned these days with preserving their local, which fine, I get it. You don't have to travel as much. But if that is your intent, then you need to wait some time before you go back there. <laughs> because if you go back the next shift, the next week, the next month, you're just burning yourself into their memories and you're really going to smoke the place. But I have a local here that I've been backed off of five times. And I go back there like every six months and I always get a couple hours in. Yeah, that, I was going to say kind of similar. Like, how long is it going to take for them to forget you? Yeah. Um, if it's Vegas, they're going to forget about you really quick because millions of people pass through those casinos every month or every year, at least. And so, yeah, they forget about you quicker. If it is your local, it, it could take a while. I've had the issue, you know, I'm in the Seattle area and we've got tons of casinos, but dealers change casinos and even pit bosses so frequently I'll show up at a place that, that I haven't been to in a long time. Be like, dang it, that guy works here too. And, <laughs> and so even though like maybe I've never been backed off there, which is probably not the case nowadays, but we'll say back in the day, never been backed off there. But this, you know, a pit boss has, has moved to this casino and, and now, but really the question is how long is it going to take for them to forget? Now with the Tommy situation, he doesn't care. He's driving by it anyway. And so if he can get in a, a shoe or two before the next back off, then that's great. But if it's that you actually want them to not know who you are, however long you think that'll take, and it depends on the size of the casino and kind of how much of a mark you left or how well they knew you. Yeah. And the bottom line is the answer to the question of how long before they forget you, you don't know the answer to that. You'll never know the answer to that. Yeah. So, but I guess that's at least maybe the assumption you want to start with. There's no magic rule, but if it's this tiny casino in, in your hometown, it's going to take them longer than if it's a massive casino that it's very easy for them to forget about you. Yeah. It's like, I have a dealer friend who works somewhere and to this day, there's still a picture of me in like their employee break room, but I haven't been there in like seven years or something. That's hilarious. So you really, just, really left a mark. <laughs> yeah, you did. I think it was a positive impact. <laughs> right. Employee of the month for the seven straight years. <laughs> Joe 748. Well, building on that idea of local casinos and, and longevity, the next question says, should you avoid back counting at your local casinos to improve longevity? You're not playing. Nobody's watching you. You're, you're back counting. You're just like any other person in the casino standing around watching a game. I, I don't care if you're being seen a lot doing it. it. It doesn't matter. You're not a threat to them until money is on the table and then they've assessed you're a threat. If you're just standing and back counting, I don't personally think, I know some people have said some things about this, but I don't think that they ever view you as a threat or surveillance or the pit bosses are ever looking at you other than to go, hey man, you want to play? There's a seat over here trying to get you to lay action down. That's it. Yeah. If you have a micro bankroll too, it's like sometimes you don't have the option. You actually have to back count. But this is, we're talking like a really small bankroll if you want to be positive. Like you can't actually afford to play a $15 minimum the whole entire time. Joe, that sounds so offensive. A micro bankroll. <laughs> hey, I started with a micro bankroll. Anyway, I think yeah. a lot of us did. <laughs> you know, I, I think that this issue... 
It comes down to what people mean by back counting. We've been trying the last year or so to correct this, that I think that there are people, what what they think we mean by back counting is to sit there taking up a spot at the table, hawking the cards, and then placing a bet as soon as it's a true, you know, whatever, one or one and a half. And then the moment it drops below that true count, they sit out and say, go ahead, I'm not playing. And that's not the way now there there have been times that i've played tables where i like i sit out below a true one but even then i am watching the tv you know of course i'm never missing a card but the, the point being if if they're saying like improve longevity by avoiding back counting the only reason it would hurt your longevity is if you're doing it in a way that's like very conspicuous so we've we've been trying to correct this with people when we say wonging in wonging out it should not be in the way that James Groshin called being a nit, where everybody's pissed off with you. The player is the dealer, the pit boss. There's a way to back count and wong in and wong out that isn't being a nit. Now, I've been in it before when I just don't care. But generally, that's not the way that I approach advantage play at all, it, nor do I recommend approaching. I don't know if I've been a nit, but I've cared less about my impact at the table but it really shouldn't hurt your longevity, as as you said, SD1, if you're doing it the right way. Anything to add to that, boys? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. Don't be a nit. Yeah, and if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, Grosjean wrote an article. You can find it on Gambling with an Edge on Las Vegas Advisor. And it's it's really worth reading. We put out a video on YouTube maybe a year ago that was like, what advantage players should not do at the table? And it's really some of this stuff. It, so it shouldn't hurt your longevity if you're doing it the right way. And if you're doing it the wrong way, you're really hurting yourself. You're hurting the next card counter and you're hurting yourself because you're just costing yourself time by not having any kind of like table awareness or act or, or whatever. And, and so there's ways to wong in, wong out without it hurting your longevity. I think the max bet threshold for each casino is what determines more attention than you sitting out, how often you're sitting out or not. I mean, I played a local for a while, and when I first started out, my max bet was like $75, and I was being a nit, sitting at the table, not playing a single negative, and then I came back a year later playing 2 by 500 and then after the first two shoes, I got attention and heat right away, so... I played 200 hours before at two by 75, wonging in and out with no problem. Then when I played all the minimums going to two by 500, that's when I got all the attention. Yeah, it's true. But if you're rustling feather, you know, you can't worry about other players in the sense of like, we have a job to do, but there is a way to not stand out as much with your wonging and back counting and all that stuff. So I, that, that sounds like almost conflicting things, but we can't spend the whole time talking about this, but there, there's ways to conduct yourself that you're not giving up EV, but you're also not just kind of being an ass. Just play it cool. That's the one thing I'd say. Just play it cool and, and act as if. Act like people in the casino. Yes. There you go. All right. Our next question. Is there a way to request a continuous shuffle machine be taken out and a shoe be put in the game? Ooh. I love this question when I read it. I was like, the set of cojones on you to do this would be kind of awesome. Is there a way? Ask. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, I didn't I don't have any other answer to that. I wouldn't do it. Like I just wouldn't do it. I've tried a few times. Of course you have. <laughs> I was in Aruba once and 
they only had a continuous shuffle machine. So I went up to the manager and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm from the U S and I was wondering if you guys have like a real blackjack game, you know, like how they do in Vegas where it has the actual cards and like the, you know, like how they, I kept saying how they do it in Vegas, you know? And he was like, why? And I was like, Oh, it's just what I'm used to. I just don't know what these machines are. Like, I don't like playing with machines. I just want to play real cards. And he said, what would you, where would you go to school? MIT? He's like, why do you, why do you want to shoot? Like right, right away, he was suspicious. So someone definitely was hitting that place before. But I I offered to like do, can we do a $100 minimum for, you know, a shoe game and things like that? And that didn't work. I was in a place in Europe and I tried the same thing. And I was kind of met with the same response. I was like, they were like, well, what, what difference does it make? I mean, it's the same game, isn't it? Same rules. Why do you need it to be out of a shoe? Like he, he was suspicious right away. I mean, the only way you're going to make it happen is... To your point, what you did, if, if you can bet a lot, if somehow you can work in tipping where it's not killing your your game in some way, I mean, it's the same way that someplace you get a private table. That's the only way it's probably going to happen. But I said, good luck for a reason. It clearly didn't go well for you. Yeah. I mean, I think it would, you have more of a chance in the U.S. if you play it off, play, like you said, play it cool and, and play this kind of high roller. Like, I want a $100 minimum at least to... Give me a private table with a shoe. That might work some places. I was going to tell a similar story. I was in another country last summer, and I went to a place, and the only blackjack table they had, it was a continuous shuffle, and I asked and asked and asked, and they, they wouldn't do it. I mean, I even played through a shoe to see like how far before they put the cards back in, and if there was going to be any other opportunity for advantage play, and there wasn't, and... They wouldn't do it. But then I went to another casino and and walk in, continue to shuffle. And I said, hey, do you have any non? And they're like, oh, yeah, we do. We can open it up for you. And so if you walk in and all you see is CSM, you might as well ask, like, hey, are there times that you have not? Like, I don't trust these machines. I know that there are overflow pits that open peak hours, especially evenings, you know, so it might be just finding out when they have more t- that they're not going to pay for the the CSM machine because they're expensive. They're not going to pay for them for these overflow pits. And that's when you can find a standard game. So it, it doesn't hurt to ask when they might have those open. But yeah, if it's to get them to deal a hand shuffle game at a table that has a CSM there, uh, yeah, good luck. <laughs> good luck with that, I guess. That is a good point that you made about the overflow and Maybe they don't have CSMs everywhere that could be on every table. I don't know how much many people know this. Colin said it's expensive, but they're actually leased. So it's an ongoing expense to the casino. So there might be something to that. Yeah. That's why they sometimes get rid of them after after a while, because it's like, ah, oh, this is too expensive. Have either of you two ever heard of anyone getting a count game in Macau? No. No. All right. Next question comes from BGA member... Asil or Asil, if you can go back to your first 10 hours, what would you have changed or how would you have changed or why would you have changed or modified things now? This is to people that have been playing for for quite a while. So I'll open it up to you guys. I would have used some kind of betting software to see that I wasn't playing with like a 90% risk of ruin. That's right. Could you remind people that don't know what happened to your first? Yeah, I was playing on a $5,000 bankroll and I was doing like two by 500 and as my true four or five, and I lost all my money in one night, basically, when I went to the casino on a work trip, and I was so confused because the 
it was like a true eight and I was doing two by 500. I lost all my money. I was like, how did this happen? It was a true eight. Like I should have won every hand. Dude, there's probably thousands and thousands of card counters in air quotes, card counters, you know, that, that yeah, with five top bets, you know, (laughs) how could it happen to me? It was a true 10. I don't have really anything to add to this because I had really good counsel from you too. Both Colin and Joe out of a boot camp asked certain questions and got certain answers. And I don't feel like I made any missteps, both because of BJA training and because I had that counsel um, after a boot camp. So I honestly can't say I would have done something that won't win. I would have won because I didn't. I got my butt kicked <laughs> for a long time. But I mean, I really don't have anything to add to that. Well, thanks for teeing me up, boys. <laughs> because just some for eight lost five grand by not having the proper counsel. SD1 spent three grand going to a boot camp and started off the, the right way. So blackjack apprenticeship boot camp. Save yeah. money <laughs> to make money. <laughs> Moving on. How do you get around facial recognition and license plate scanners nowadays? So those are two separate things. We'll try to tackle them both. And how large of a role do they play in reducing longevity for players? So let's start with facial recognition. How how do you get around or how much effort do you guys put into getting around facial recognition software nowadays? I don't put any effort into it. I would say that 98 to maybe even 99% of facial recognition software is garbage. And then there's few spots that actually have really, really, really good facial recognition. You guys just have to remember that it's super expensive to have that software and getting around it. I think is negative EV trying to spend all this time trying to somehow beat something that's pretty daggone good when it is that level, you can easily just avoid those places and you lose less than 1% of all the casinos out there. That's what I would say when it comes to facial rec, don't stay up all night about it. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. I don't know how you beat it other than, trying to find a way to conceal one eye or something. And so it can't measure the distance, but I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if anyone's tried using an eye patch or something like that, but I mean, a full blown mask would get it done. That's about it. Like Hollywood style quality prosthetics. prosthetics. Yep. It'll just take four hours to put on in the morning. Right. And they cost money and they're not cheap, but I do think it's a good point. You brought up SD1, this was an interesting thing to find out from a surveillance connection we have, which is people assume if a casino subscribes to Biometrica that they have the facial recognition software, but that's not true. It's a separate cost that most casinos are not willing to pay for. There are some, and so you could imagine the newer, fancier casinos might be willing to, but but it's it's not very many casinos that are are willing to. And you know what? Fun story, boys. <laughs> I was playing a place that I believe does have this. And I played myself. All I wore was a ball cap. And I played for like an hour, one spot of 50 to two spots of 400. No heat, no back off, and ran out of time. I still didn't have any heat. I wanted to stay and play, but I, I literally had to be somewhere. So even so, they have to choose. There, there are places that it's just scanning every face. If you go through the right entrance... Other places, they have to choose to use it. They have to say, hey, let's run this person through our database. And so they all, you already have to be on their radar. 
you're also not really well known, Colin. So that's probably why you flew that's probably the it. Yeah. <laughs> and even those places that have the active facial recognition, I think someone told us that it's only one choke point of the casino because, well, they don't want to spend the money to put those higher tech cameras in every corner and every angle. So if you can avoid the main entrance in some way, that could probably help. What was that movie from 20 years ago with well, Enemy of the State? Oh, yeah. They showed all the fancy tech and then made it with a zero end from the satellites. I walked out of the movie theater, like, looking everywhere for the next couple of days. Enhance, enhance. Yeah, and that's, yeah exactly. That's, that's I think, how we imagine this stuff, and, and it's, it's not reality. But there's a second one. He talks about the license plate scanners. And again, this isn't every casino, but they exist. I don't know if you guys have any pro tips there. Rent a car, park off-site. I don't want to recommend anything illegal, so I won't recommend anything, any of those things, but... Park nearby, catch an Uber if you can't or don't want to walk. It costs you a few bucks, you know, five, ten bucks and protect your license. I mean, they can get the license. I think we've all joked about this before. Like, it's had to have happened where somebody pulls in a rental car that one of us has used to a casino and they immediately get heat because they've recorded that license plate number in their databases. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're concerned about that, just... Be cautious about it and have somebody drop you off too. That's never a bad thing. I don't know if anyone's had success with those. There's some companies that are selling some like spray stuff you put on the license plate. And supposedly the cameras it like blinds the camera and can't see, but I don't think that's, I don't know if that actually works. I want what they have in the movie where you hit the button and then it just flips to different plates or nothing, like just a blank. That'd be cool. James Bond stuff. If it's local, then yeah, maybe an Uber. If you're going on a trip, there's rental cars. There's also Turo, which is basically Airbnb for rental cars. I've been real happy with that lately for trips. I've even used it locally. If like my wife was going somewhere that like the day before their trip, the weather totally changed and there's tons of snow and it was like roads will be unsafe without all-wheel drive. So we got a last minute all-wheel drive car just locally. So that's an option. Uh, he has a second part, like a follow-up question. He says, it seems, or she, it seems like being an optimizer with a more moderate spread in these types of places would maybe keep their eyes off of you. Thoughts on that, that you're going to not have to worry about facial recognition or license plate scanners by being an optimizer with a moderate spread rather than a maximizer. So my dad used to tell me the only difference between two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive is the distance you have to walk. And the same thing goes for optimizer or maximizer. It's just the time at which they look at you, most likely. So you're not beating it. If you drove in in your car, they just pick you off 20 hours later, same result. Yeah. The tough thing with, with this is quantifying it. Like if you say, hey, I'm going to spread half as much and make half as much. Can you quantify that you'll last not just twice as long? Because why would you spend twice as much time making the same money? You'd have to quantify you're going to last much more than twice as long. And that's hard to do. It's hard to know. You know, you could get a spread so small, you never get backed off, but then you're not making any money. So of course, the other extreme is also true. If you go from $1 to $10,000, you're like, Probably not going to last more than one shoe, but but just saying like, oh yeah, optimizer, that's worth it is really hard for me to say because 
there are exceptions like Scott Chow, but most of the people I know that have made the most money were maximizers. If that's the goal is the money in a shorter period of time or whatever, not spending your whole life making the money. I don't think Joe's ever optimized in his life because he just can't resist putting the money out there. But I have optimized at a few shops, but I don't think I could have just gone in there and quote unquote optimized and just guessed at shorting my spread. I had inside information, several points of very good inside information that allowed me to optimize it. I'm not just guessing like, oh, I'll spread tighter. Well, how do you know that that tighter spread still not above their threshold to make them look at you? You don't. So to your point, it's hard to quantify. So unless you have a lot of inside information, it's sheer guessing game. It is. That's what I just want people to think through. I think there's this thought, optimizer, I'll last so much longer that I'll make more money. And that's hard to quantify. So I just want people to at least pause and say, am I going to last longer enough that it's worth it? Which is not an answer, but there are no like simple answers in a lot of this stuff. No, I'm not uh, suggesting this to anyone, but I'm just wondering if you put a piece of like black electrical tape and like turned a three into an eight or something. Yeah. Like would it trick the license plate reader? And as long as it doesn't show up as a match. Please seek legal counsel before adding electrical tape to your license plate. (laughs) Just a hypothetical, theoretical question. All right, moving on. BJ, member the bishop asked on our forum, and some of these we just grabbed, they were good discussions on the forum, so I just pirated them for this because if there are good discussions on the forum, I'm sure people are wondering this stuff. So the bishop asked, to adjust bankroll or not to adjust bankroll? That is my question. It says, say you have a $10,000 bankroll, and you win a thousand bucks. What is your bankroll now? So, you know, basically, should you adjust your bankroll after a 10% increase? This is just like one night. (laughs) (laughs) One hour. (laughs) I mean, your bankroll is now 11,000. That's true. It's just a lot of statistical noise at that point that, you know, you walked away with being up a thousand bucks. Some of this just, you just have to create metrics to it. And from personal experience, we'll go the other way with this because I lost almost 40% of my bankroll. I had to readjust my spread and drop down in terms of, I I think I'm comfortable with around that 30 to 35% mark in terms of, okay, I need to adjust down or up. I'm ready to go up here. I'm ready to go down here. Forewarning, though, every time you bump your spread, you get killed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's hilarious. I'll tell a couple of anecdotes. One of the MIT teams, they would phone in their results every day. So then someone would enter it all in, and then they'd be told their new betting unit every day. And as far as like optimal betting, that was optimal. In a similar way, my first little blackjack team, it was three of us. And and we did that not every day, but I think every week. We'd, you know, update our results and I'd be like, all right, now we're using a, you know, $30 unit. Oh, now we're using a $40 unit. Now we're using a $25 unit. Now, that's not really what I recommend because one, it's it can be a little confusing. Like, wait, what's my betting unit today? Or what, you know, if you're updating it daily. 
that can be a bit confusing. Secondly, I think just emotionally, it's it's a roller coaster ride where one day, hooray, I get to bet more. And next day, oh no, I got to bet less. And there's another story though of two of the guys that I was on a team with. So there, there were four of us that we kind of split off and two of the guys kept going and they went on a losing streak and they chose not to resize and they kept getting killed and they got crushed so much. They had to take outside money to keep going, which totally watered down all of their investment, their dollar per hour. It was kind of a train wreck, but there, there was this thought of like, well, we're down 40%. We can't keep losing. Well, we're down 50%. We can't keep losing. And then they're down like 75% and they're like, okay, we need more cash. So my advice, my like rule of thumb, and this isn't, this isn't a law. This is just my advice is like 20 to 25%. If your bankroll's up 20 to 25%, Hey, congratulations, resize. If it's down 20 to 25%, dude, you better resize your betting unit or else you're going to really be depressed when you're down 50% and your risk is like through the roof and you have to majorly resize. That's my my anecdotal advice. Yeah, and that's my 30 to 35% number is just my anecdotal, my personal, what I my threshold. Let's call it that. Moving on, outside. BJ member outside has a few questions about etiquette. Um, and I think this stuff is important. I don't know if I emphasized it enough like in more public-facing stuff. I think I always have at our boot camps and, and with our members, but definitely put more effort in public-facing stuff to say etiquette matters. So first question, you sit at a double deck game with a possible counter. Both of you randomly vary your bets between, basically, you're both moving your bets with the count. True count goes up even higher, and you kind of wait to see, and he ups his bet too. What should you do? Should you finish out the shoe? Should you leave right away? So you know you're at the table with another counter. What do you do? I'm really interested what Joe says about this. I mean, yeah, I would definitely leave for my own sake just to not have the attention. It's just to, I mean, this has happened to all of us where we look over and we see the person's betting the exact same. And this happened to me once in Vegas. And it was just like, I looked at the guy and he looked at me. It was a double deck game. And he was like, well, this is going to be interesting. And I was like, yeah, it will be. And then the pit boss came over right away and mentioned, you know, made a jab that we were counting. So we both left and uh, went and got Island Sushi. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. nice. In Vegas. And then we <laughs> went to uh, this place in downtown Henderson. It was like this tiny place and played their game and completely destroyed it. Oh, it was fun. You know, if it's still the middle, if it's a positive shoe, you don't have to leave. You could even like stay at your lower bet and generate some EV without increasing bets together and just get through the shoe generating a little bit of ev if you don't want to look super obvious I, I see no reason to leave a positive count that's where i'm at i think it matters when i identify it because early on in my career at the beloved casino that you called your kids college fund and i ended up sitting with one of your old friends and teammates i didn't realize it and the, the count jumped very quickly it was a true four before i could blink and it was just one of those shoes. And he was betting a lot more than me. And I was like, I'm not walking away from this shoe. When it's done, I'll color up and we'll and, and I'll roll out. And it was funny because he didn't move either. We finished the shoe and both of us simultaneously slid our chips into color up because we were both thinking the same thing. I was like, well, maybe that didn't look great. <laughs> but I'm not walking away from something that positive. I think now... At this point in my career, I'm going to pick it off rather quickly. 
And I'm not going to get myself in that kind of situation. But earlier in your career, you may, you may not because you're very focused on your own game. Depends on how big the place is, too. If they have like multiple pits in different sections of the casino, then I would probably still stay at the place if there wasn't a better option nearby. But if it's a place like Foxwoods or, you know, someplace that's huge and there's pits everywhere, then yeah, who cares? I mean, I think, you know, the general AP etiquette is uh, whoever got there first gets the table. That's a rule I've always gone by and your reputation matters in the ap world even if it doesn't like do unto others <laughs> like you wouldn't want someone to come sit down and start spreading at your table so don't do that to someone else how about this what would you guys do if it's like there was some kind of special ap play promotion or something and it was a set number of time and there's only one table i'm playing it yeah i bet people slide in on a whole card game before too <laughs> and I'm just like, gosh, yeah. so, and there's a lot of stories about, you know, picking off signals and all that stuff out there. I mean, that gets kind of sticky, but a promotion that's only lasting that, I mean, I'm there for that. I'm not walking away from it. That's a tough one when it's, it's a uniquely valuable play. You know, I, I don't know if, if it's costing each other money. If you just say, Hey, let's chop it and like take shifts or, I mean, I, maybe I wouldn't chop it with someone I don't know, but I wouldn't chop it with someone I don't know. Yeah. Awesome. Last question here. BJ member Hero Blackjack 21 says, I'll be in Vegas soon looking for a decent place to stay and uh, want some advice where to stay, to drive to casinos for a month long, cook his own food. Also, where's the safest place to stay in Vegas? You guys have any advice there? I highly recommend Circus Circus. It's one of the finest hotels in Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Airbnb, I, I would Airbnb it. If you have comp money, then obviously use comp money or you have free stays and then just don't play there. But to cook your own food, I think Airbnb is the way. Yeah, I mean, I think they asked like uh, safe neighborhoods or something. Yeah, I don't know. Vegas. I mean, if you ask Nichols the best place to stay in Vegas, he would say anywhere but Vegas. He hates Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> he would say leave right away. I think like Henderson and Summerlin, Henderson, they're they're far enough away. You're not like Vegas proper, but still close enough that you can get everywhere. That would be my advice. And, and Airbnb and like something with good ratings and you can see the rooms, all that stuff. I wouldn't recommend if you're staying for a month to stay very close to downtown just because it can even get noisy. Like sometimes <laughs> the, the like club music is pounding near downtown. So that would that would be my my advice and and dude yeah cook your own meals if you're gonna be there for for a month so yeah that's the advice. When I came to boot camp, I've told you this story. I booked a room at the D, and it was really cheap. And my window looked down on the stage. Oh no! So they were ripping, and all, I'm just like my god because. I'm just like I tell any of our students that are at boot camp, I'm like, don't play. You're here to do boot camp. I was like, I'm just going to get sleep. I'm going to go to the second the second day, refresh. I, it took me a while to go to sleep. <laughs> and now I always travel with headphones. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Find somewhere. Read the reviews. Read the reviews on Airbnb. That's probably the best, best advice. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Hopefully this is valuable for you all. We'll, we'll be back before too long with another set of, of questions and answers for you all. And in the meantime, check out blackjackapprenticeship.com if you want to take card counting and advantage play seriously. <laughs>